I are planning a duet tonight. A what's the word? Improvisational duet. And I thought that I would begin by just offering a little postscript postscript to the uh, conversation on Donna on generosity. I was thinking about it today and this afternoon, and I was thinking about the, the, the pillars of the Dharma, which I spoke about, dana, generosity, sila, conduct, purity of action, and, and, um, and bhavana, which is the training of the mind, that these are natural expressions. Dana, gener- the spirit of generosity, is the natural expression of an awakened heart. And it's, this is the view of someone who is awake. They just naturally want to give. But because we are in, in the process of realizing our, as I was speaking about last night, our intrinsic wakefulness and unleashing all those heart qualities that flow naturally when we're open, we have, to, we have to remind ourselves. As my friend Surya used to say, there is this view from above. It's all a vast view that, has, uh, that sees everything from the, with the eyes of compassion and the spirit of generosity. That's the view from above. But human beings, because they're so conditioned, need to, as he calls it, schlep up from below. <laughs> so we, we practice this. We... Purify, and what we're simply reminding ourselves of are these unconditional qualities that are really innate in us. That's why when, when I say the word calm to almost anyone, there's something that it evokes that we already know that's, that's in us. And generous uh, is something that because it's, we've gotten conflicted based on fear, we, we tend to need to be reminded a little more for that quality to, uh, to wake up. But... I thought I would just end that piece with a, with a little uh, story about an, the awakened expression of generosity. A wise woman was traveling in the mountains when she came upon a beautiful, clear stream. Thirsty, she cupped her hand, reached in around, brought the water to her mouth. After she had drunk, she noticed a precious stone in the palm of her hand. She held it high, and it glittered in the sun. Delighted, she tucked the treasure into her bag. The next day, the wise woman met a hungry fellow traveler, and without hesitating, she opened her bag to share the food that she had. Immediately, the traveler caught sight of the precious stone and asked the woman to give it to him. She did so without the slightest hesitation. The traveler left rejoicing, In her good fortune, this stone was surely worth enough money to provide a lifetime of security. But only a few days later, she came back, her brow furrowed, and returned the stone to the wise woman. I've been thinking, she said. I know how valuable this stone must surely be, but I've brought it back to trade for something even more precious. Please give me what you have within you that enables it to freely give it to me. So, 
That's what we are ideally cultivating here. And last night I, I talked a little bit about, about the, the realization of the Buddha that we ultimately, what he realizes that we don't really need to lift out of this moment to find what we are looking for. That our tendency to go out of ourselves in search is what actually obscures the, the natural freedom and the natural qualities of the heart that are available to us if we, as one of my teachers put it, stay where you are. And in his first teaching that he gave to some of his, his friends that he had practiced with who were really struggling to try to, to transcend their human condition, he said, listen, keep it simple. There's four things. Life has stress, suffering, things that are hard to bear, birth, sickness, old age, and death, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get, being separated from things that you hold near and dear. This is a truth. And the way you need to work with this, open to it. And the second thing he said, what turns that situation into mental suffering, into compounded suffering, what adds that extra arrow is this chronic habit of wanting to go, wanting things to be different, wanting to get somewhere. And fortunately, there's a third truth, there's an end to this. There is a a cessation, a fading away of this compulsive need to have, to get, to get rid of, to get somewhere. And this can, the, the second one, the cause, that craving, that needs to be released, that needs to be abandoned. And the third, the truth that there is a letting go, this needs to be realized. And the fourth, there is a, a path. And that path is called the Noble Eightfold Path. And we'll elaborate a little bit more on the Eightfold Path tomorrow, but it, it has three main parts to it. it. has the part of wise action, wise livelihood, uh, wise speech, the, the, the action part, the, the purification over action. It's got the meditative part, which is wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. It has the wisdom part, wise intention or wise thought, and wise understanding. And these three are called action, meditation, wisdom. So that's the essence. But then in the middle of that eightfold path, there is that, that navigator that I spoke of and that Heather spent the whole first evening sp- speaking of. And that is uh, the practice of cultivating mindful attention. I wanted to share with you just to hopefully validate what you have been doing over the course of this retreat. So I want to go back again to the, these four truths. It's very, every teaching is some expression of these four truths. Dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the path leading that goes nowhere. Remember? It's right here. In fact, there's a wonderful story from the the numbered sutras of the Buddha called the Anguttara Nikaya, where a, a being comes to the Buddha who somehow 
remember who had some kind of qualities. This is, a, again, some of this is just a, a story. It may have reality. We don't know. We can just th- take it as a, as a wise story, not, un, not unlike this wise woman. But this person in a previous lifetime was a deva, was a celestial being, and they had this, uh, this special power to be able to, to walk long distances very quickly, to go and this person wanted to reach the end of the cosmos or the end of the world. Uh, and they, they tried to walk to the end of the world. And they, they died before they could finish the job. So reborn in another lifetime at the time of the Buddha, still, imbu- still endowed with some quality, came to the Buddha and said, you know, I, this, I tried this, it didn't work. He says, is it possible to get to the end of the world by going. He's still curious. And the Buddha said, sorry, not possible to get to the end of the world by going. But only those who come to the end of the world wake up. (laughs) But then he followed that with a, a little riff on the Four Noble Truths. He said, Within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world. (coughs) Within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the cause of the world. Remember the cause of suffering? Within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and senses, lies the end of the world. The end of the cosmos. And within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the path leading to the end of the world. So everything in the teachings revolves around, depends on, is available to us within this, what he called fathom-long body. They had that nautical measurement at the time of the, the Buddha. And so this is what he said when he described the value of what of what we're doing here. He said, even as one who encompasses with his or her mind the mighty ocean includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean, just so, O monks, and you're all monks for this weekend, just so, O monks, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. One thing, O monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, the body is calm, the mind is calm, discursive thoughts are quietened, and all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge reach the fullness of development. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If developed... Cultivated ignorance is abandoned. Supreme knowledge arises. Delusion of self is released. The underlying tendencies 
fetters are eliminated, what is that one thing? It's mindfulness directed to the body. So when the Buddha started his dispensation of the teachings, he offered another sutra in the same, another teaching in the same vein as this, which is called the Maha Satipatthana Sutra, which is basically the, four, the sutta, the teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness. And that's what we have been navigating over the course of this retreat. And we've obviously barely scratched the surface here. It's a lifetime or many lifetime, depending on your view of reality, process of, of studying in real time this fathom-long body with its senses, perceptions, and everything, and the world that gets created, all right here. Now I'll say more about that. What's that? Four minutes. Four minutes. Whoa. <laughs> Thank you. I can feel you getting nervous. <laughs> okay, in four minutes. The first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. And I don't, we've said so much about it, but it is, uh, we have superficially the idea of body. But as you've discovered, the experience of body is not really body. It's streaming, vibrating, pulsing. It's a, a series of processes that are, that are constantly in a state of movement and without any... Uh, and it's happening all by itself. And we discover the more we study this body, we see that it is, that it is, um, it is, a, it is a source of understanding of the selflessness of things. We can reflect on the idea that the body that we, did, we didn't ask to be born and this body is born and it ages and it dies not according to anybody's will or wish. It, it does it all by itself. So we see in that way it is not in anyone's control. And we can experience that changing selfless nature as we sit with it. And we can see when we start to sit with it that it's not easy to stay here embodied. Because... M- not only we have the vicissitudes in our body, we have, the, we have sometimes pleasant moments, sometimes unpleasant. And sometimes neutral moments where we just space out. So the first foundation is to be able to be embodied when our body, when our mindfulness directed to the body, it's calmed, it's steadied, it creates the conditions for focus. If we're not able to stay with our body, as most of us aren't, when we have a pleasant experience, what happens? We react with liking. Liking then is followed by, I want more. And that tension creates an internal pressure that then spawns that whole world of, of fantasy that we tend to spin out in, all in reaction to feeling tones. That's the second, that's the second domain of mindfulness. Mindfulness of feeling, not feeling and emotions in this case. It's that every experience you have has a valence of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whether it's a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, whatever it is, it has a valence. And if we can get to know those moments of pleasure and meet it with mindfulness, it cuts the chain that would usually lead us into this endless search. If we can catch a moment of, of unpleasantness and feel it, 
It cuts the chain that would usually lead to a whole proliferation of aversion. And I hate it and I got to get out of here and I some, need something else. If we can catch the neutral moments, stay present, it opens up into that quality of spaciousness, of equanimity, of balance. Very important to learn to navigate and feel pleasant without that reaction of, of grasping and liking. Well, liking will come, but without the grasping. Very important to feel the unpleasant so that we can accommodate it and stay in body rather than go off into aversion. Very important to be able to learn to handle the moments that are neither pleasant or unpleasant. Because if you can't handle it, you end up in the third foundation of mindfulness, which is what we, which is the world of all of our mental reactions, all of our mental states, all of our mind objects, the, the thoughts, the feelings. And what we learn in our practice in the third foundation, mindfulness of mind, is how to navigate the world of, of states and emotions, and the different objects of our mind. We learn to feel, as I, we talked about in the instructions, feel our emotions, not just think about them. Feel our states. What's it feel like to feel sad or happy or joyful? Or what's it feel to, to feel like grief? Let ourselves feel it. And then as we study the different states of mind, we end up in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, in the wisdom place of seeing which states are really helpful wholesome, really onward leading, which ones are, make us crazy? Which ones actually hypnotize us into think we can't be happy now? And that's where Heather <laughs> takes over. Really, that was very well done. Thank you. <laughs> was that four minutes? You were, um, you did just, you did 21 minutes instead of 15, so you only six minutes. I worked, I worked up a good sweat. <laughs> We're both so enthusiastic that we just want to keep saying more and more, faster and faster, and time goes by. So um, in our discussion about this evening, you know, and about our retreat and this retreat and, you know, what it's like for you and a lot of you being relatively new to all of this, what is essential dharma and what are some of the pieces we want to, we still really want you to get as the foundation pieces. So they're all foundation pieces. there's no one piece that's more important than any other and it isn't that you have to get this first before you get that or anything but there are these main sort of the the structure of the way the Buddha taught was these like main chunks and so there's several more of them that I want to share with you Um, and I'm going to mostly name them and just fill them out very slightly but just to sow the seeds so you're familiar with what they're called because what happens over time is people um, if you keep going with this pursuit and you find that you know this is what you want to incorporate in your life, you can get closer to one of these groups or one of these structures that we call them the lists because the way the Buddha described a lot of them was these in this list form. Take a list and then explore those pieces on that list for a while. You know, it could be for a retreat or it could be for a month or it could be for half a year or whatever. And another piece, another time, and get to know that soon you begin to realize that they all lead in the same direction. They're all different ways of saying the same thing. 
we sometimes say they're like different facets of one diamond. You know, they all lead us to the diamond, but we just can enter them by exploring it in this way or in this way. And this is part of the brilliance of the Buddha's mind, who is able to explain how it works inside us in terms of this piece or another piece, in terms of those four that um, Howie was just describing, the four foundations of my ways to be present and use those to help us understand ourselves and so on. So one of the things I like to say, which is the way I actually work with or use or um, check myself, is um, I think of terms of having an opera glass for some reason. I've never had an opera glass. I must think it must be like I think going to Paris is a fun thing to do when you space out. I don't, I don't actually go to Paris, but my idea of it is, um, is a stick thing, a handle, and then on the end of it is one or two or three or four or five or six or however many lenses, depending on the list. So I'm picking up the lens of four um, foundations of mindfulness, let's say, and that means I've got four lenses. So I'll just like check, I'll look through, okay, this lens, mindfulness of the body, Am I, if I don't have mindfulness of the body, and then I'll be aware of my experience in terms of mindfulness of the body and the other ones and so on. And so um, that's how I do it. I, I'm doing my practice, I'm being present, and then I remember, oh, this, this way of seeing it, this way the Buddha described the Dharma. Okay, let me just check on that and see if that applies to my experience or I can relate to myself in those terms like that. So um, when we get to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where I suddenly was handed over my turn to speak, um, there are different, uh, how much to say this, there are several lists in this little package of ways to use our mind wisely. And there are two which, according to a particular scholar monk who's really interested in trying to find the earliest teachings the Buddha gave from all kinds of sources and compare those sources and see which ones are in common and therefore which probably was likely the Buddha himself, um, there are two really important ones which I personally am familiar with in my own experience and refer to often and check in with often. So I want to offer them to you. And there are others I will also touch on. And so one of them, Howie has already mentioned, I've mentioned briefly, he mentioned more last night. And it's the, here's my opera glass with five things on it. It's the five, what we call hindrances. They're really worthwhile getting to become, become familiar with these as what the Buddha called visiting forces. Here we are sitting, doing our thing, being, being however much here we are. And then we get disturbed by and pulled away from our present awareness into things because of these five. And we don't just have one of them. Very often there are at least three going on at once. You can't have five at once because two are opposite each other, but you can have the other four at once. If you have four at once, we joke, but we always say this and everyone always laughs. We say, then you're having a multiple hindrance attack. Because it's like these, as the Buddha described, they're like these forces, like robbers, lurking around just outside your house, and they'll come in and invade your space if you're not wary of them. And we all have them. And they are, as we've mentioned, and you're familiar with them and you notice them, they're also referred to in what he's just said, so you can see how it's another doorway into the same diamond, wanting something, or the opposite, resisting or, or struggling against or being afraid of or mad at something. And you can have those almost simultaneously because usually if I want it to stop raining, I don't like the rain. They're together, you know, they're flip sides of one thing, really. 
So the wanting, which can become extreme, and the resisting, which become, we know, extreme. Then there's another pair of opposites, which can't, you can't have simultaneously, which is why you can only have four out of five all at once if you're having an attack of them, um, is restlessness and agitation, squirminess. When you're sitting here and you just, especially when you're newer and you're uncomfortable and you can't quite settle and you're just like, oh God, I want to just get out of this hall and scream and run. And anybody felt any? We know you have because you've already told us that when we've met with you. That sense. And it can be subtle, you know, just slightly edgy and it can be like really intense and you just want to make a loud noise and so on. Any degree of that restlessness, agitation, upset, unable to settle. The opposite is the sinking mind. So we were talking about that. Somebody was asking that in the Q&A today and different degrees of collapse, of dull, of just not really being alert, low energy. And the fifth being doubt, which how he mentioned to you last night. This alone is a huge topic, the whole thing of doubt. I studied doubt in me for nearly a year, one time, a few years ago, and discovered that, wow, it's all over the place. Doubt is almost always there. And um, I just wanted to say it's really fascinating to explore the feeling of doubt. When we doubt, it's the opposite of the feeling of trust. This is my experience anyway. And when we trust, when I trust life, I trust the next moment, I trust my mind, I trust people around me, whatever it is, I trust the unfolding of all of it. When I can proceed with trust, there's a steadiness, there's a I'm not scared, I'm not defended, I'm available. It's a feeling of, it feels great, right? The opposite is the feeling of, of a doubt. It's like, I'm not sure, I don't know, I, I don't think I can. And that feeling generates in me, in my experience anyway, and I'm sure it's pretty common, uh, an urge to do something about something, to find something out or to fix something or to, I've got to, I don't know what to do. What shall I do? I've got to do something. The I do something is fueled from that state. And when there isn't that state, there's a state of trust, everything's, it's like a sunset moment. There isn't an I having to do anything. There is no wanting. There is no second noble truth. Therefore, there is no first noble truth. It's just a, so I found it really interesting to discover how much doubt is fueling so much of our, our neurosis, so much of our worrying, thinking, planning. It's because we doubt that the next moment will be okay if we don't get it together or something. So those are the hindrances. So to recognize wanting or not wanting, energy too much up, becoming disturbed, energy too down, becoming dull, not really able to function well, and this lurky kind of mm, not quite sure feeling to whatever degree. So those are hindrances. Visiting forces, not personal, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with them, but when they are in us, however many of them, one or two or three or four of them are going in us, they are disturbing our freedom, our, our well-being, our state of wholesome simply means free from any kind of distress at all. When they're active in any way, they've suddenly showed up, we don't know where they came from. They just come on. They're visiting. They're not ours. They're not us. They just visit us. Then there is disturbance, anxiety, struggle, and everything else, and just to great extent sometimes. So get to know them. They're your relatives. They're your extended family. They are always going to be coming and visiting. When recognized, as soon as you recognize, I'm wanting something, the recognizing part is the big mind, or as I've been referring to it, the knowing part, 
And once that is known, that wanting has much less likelihood to suck us up and draw us off into some tangle. Because we see, you know, we're protected by the knowing. So what was a hindrance when we didn't know it, as soon as we know it, becomes simply an experience. It's a hindrance if it takes us over and we don't have mindfulness and we'll be taken over by it. So we're often watching, you know, oh yeah, here's a hindrance. And suddenly it can flip from being hindering you to not hindering you just because of the quality of recognizing it. So we're sort of playing with these forces and then pulling our minds around and, oh, I see you, I got you, I got you, I know. You know, and then you're just like, okay, I'm not being pulled. And then the next moment, whoops, <laughs> something else, and now I'm pulled. It's this sort of game we play. But this, you know, the game of, of freedom or not freedom. So it's profound game, the highest game possible. <laughs> so, and what goes with this, in a way, is sort of the opposite, which are seven things, which are called awakening factors. So those are hindering factors and then awakening factors. And so they are experiences that we can also get to be familiar with, which also show up which show up the more awake we are, obviously. They're factors that help us to wake up, and as we wake up, they're more there, more available. And they are, and you don't have to remember all this, I'm just sowing these seeds so you get to begin to recognize these essential building blocks of the Dharma, the truth of how we function. Um, The first one is, guess what? Mindfulness. (laughs) That's why we talk about it first, right? So that's the first one. Without that one, Awakening factors don't even show up, really, because we're busily just being hindered. That's how we spend our lives, right? So the second one is um, Dhamma Vichaya, and that is, um, these are just the Pali words, which you also don't have to know to be able to do it. It's, um, I like the word curiosity, often translated as an investigation, but I find, for me, that's too dewy. That's definitely got to know what this is and digging around and trying to get information. My idea of investigation with a, with a magnifying glass is May Gray or some, you know, the detectives and everything, figuring it all out, very busy. That's not what it means. It means becoming closer with, staying with, open to whatever's experience going on inside you and become, through this patient staying, becoming more intimate. And I love that word intimacy it's an understanding that's more sort of right hemisphere, intuitive getting to know rather than left hemisphere gathering information and thinking a lot. And the image I have, and I have images with every, everything I think literally has pictures with it's my mind. Um, because I was a midwife for 20 odd years, the, my image for intimacy is a new mum and her new little baby and how she gets to know her little baby and she just gazes at it and she'll smell it. And just kind of like, sink into it in a way. And it's just the absorbing of information, getting to know, and that's what investigation means. But staying, paying complete attention, totally open to whatever, whatever may be revealed, available interest. So it's keeping going with this open wonder, curiosity. That's the second. The third one is um, virya, it's called, and it, it's different translations, of course, one of the translations, which I also, I tend to have to change the translations to suit me in a way, to kind of like make it work for me. Often, uh, especially in the earlier days of my practice, translated as effort, which again is troublesome for the strivy types among us, i.e. myself, because then I'd get into trying and trying and working and getting all too much doing again, which I had to learn about backing off on all the doing that I had been doing for 15 years initially. Um, and, but it, uh, it's, I think of it as energy, 
it's often um, translated as courage or enthusiasm. So it's the application of our energy for this practice to keep doing it. But the key with this piece, how am I doing for time? Whoops. The, <laughs> the, the key for this piece is a story that I have to tell you and I've been telling in the last few years. Oh, <laughs> I want to say more. I want to compete with Castro and do five-hour Dharma talks, but anyway, <laughs> um, is a story that I've been telling recently because it's perfect illustration, I think. When I was growing up in England uh, in the 50s, there was a world-famous race car driver, Englishman, called Sterling Moss, and anyone who's older might have recognized the name. And so a Formula One driver and, you know, many, many records broken, etc. Well, at the time he was there, he also had a sister, and it's kind of, you know, very classic of our era. But anyway, so his sister wasn't so famous, but she was also a race car driver. But she wasn't a Formula One race car driver. She was a rally driver, meaning that she drove regular cars, souped up, but nevertheless, on regular roads. But she won races all the time. But she only won certain races she'd go in for, and they were the races where you had to get from A to B as fast as possible, but you also only won it if... When they totaled it up at the end, you had used the least amount of gas. <laughs> so she was the most efficient racer. And she said she would do it in stocking feet. So she had this light, light, light touch. So she did exactly what she had to do and no more. Well, that's what virya is in our meditation practice. Can we be present with as light a stocking foot touch as possible to be present and no more? So there's no getting tired at the end of the day. You haven't actually been working very hard. hard. Well, you have, because when we're new at anything, we white-knuckle it, you know, we grit our teeth, and it's hard work to stand up when you're one year old or to ride a bicycle when you're four years old or whatever. But eventually, you can ride your bicycle for hours and hours and hours, and people do it for days. It's not so exhausting. So same with being present, being mindful. So that's the how to have a sustained sustainable energy for this, enthusiasm for this that never wanes because you're not overdoing it ever. That's interested, light, playful, curious. One, two, three, four is um, translated as PT. It's often translated as rapture. Well, for some people it can be rapturous. We've had the odd note. <laughs> some of you have gone like, wow, just at this amazing sit and there's this light you know and this sort of dancing and just smiling cheeks and it's just a brightness it's like this is so groovy or wow you know or something so there is that kind of energy but I don't know if rapture that's a bit of a Hollywood kind of word I think so delight is a great word but it means a kind of happiness about what's happening rightness about it there's a kind of conviction that grows this Something starts lifting in us. Up until the point, one, two, and three, we're doing. We're definitely being interested. We're definitely doing the mindfulness part. That's a skill to learn. And that lightness of application we're having to get good at, and that's skillful. After that, the next, those are three. So the next five come all on their own. One, two, three. Am I right? No, 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 no. Rapture. Have I missed anything? No. Three, four, three. Okay, seven, right. One, two, three, four, three more. So these last four, the first three we do, the last four we don't do. They start to happening. 
but they support the whole thing. So once this happiness or delight arises, we just want to keep doing it. And sometimes you'll find yourself sitting, and somebody may have already had this in this retreat even, you just want to keep sitting there. You sit there and it just feels like you're in the groove and it's happening and why would you want to go and do anything else? Joy, it many manifests in many different ways. Some people feel physical lift. Some people feel like they're elevatings. I always feel a kind of talky, twisted kind of sense. Anyway, lots of different things we can experience in it, but it's the sort of, we get held by the experience. It starts to move in and support us. And that is a very key piece because once we have this sort of, it gives this confidence, we start to relax and trust the process. And as a result, our mind can go really quite calm. Whereas we can't really get that calm by trying to do it. And I didn't, for myself, this is kind of amusing for me to, to recognize, but I was very good at one, two, and three. I mean, I really did apply myself. At three, I didn't have a light enough touch, but I was really applying myself for sure. And eventually, I would find myself at five, which is serenity, tranquility. I would become tranquil. After tranquility, naturally, as we become more tranquil, the whole thing settles down and the mind starts to become a well-behaved, well-trained dog instead of these puppies running all over the place. And so that's called collectedness or concentration. And eventually, as we become increasingly concentrated, the mind becomes increasingly um, mastered by us and this beautiful instrument, we get more and more balanced and equanimous, which Howie's already mentioned. For me, I thought, I, and it went like that for me, one, two, three, five, six, seven. And it was only after years that I began to allow myself the privilege of joy. I used to think, oh, that's for the, you know, like, it's, this is a serious thing here, we got it. And I just thought that was a bit too goofy and playful. And somehow I, a teacher of mine, very important teacher of mine said, people who've had certain kinds of trainings and certain ways of practice for a while, become PT snobs. And I was like, oh my God, I've been a PT snob all this time. And so he began to help me experience, really allow myself to access delight and joy in practice. And as I did, it became very available to me. Beauty and nature and shining cobwebs. I mean, if you can listen to some Dharma talks I've given, I've gone raving on about blissful, you know, sights and things I've had while being concentrated and so on. But the effect of the of the joy or the delight or the confidence itself does the calming. And so it's just like magic. I would just feel some sense of delight and gratitude and enthusiasm and relax and suddenly there's serenity in my whole practice. It's a, it's, it starts just doing it by itself. So I humbled myself and I was allowing myself to actually have a lot more joy, which hasn't left since I've been able to finally be available to it, not have to take myself quite so seriously. So. The piece about the thing that is useful in all of this, you you may, if you keep going, get familiar with each of them, but you can lump them together as um, mindfulness has to go first. There's always, without mindfulness, as I said, there is no meditation practice, actually. You're just thinking or worrying or doing the usual. So mindfulness is what allows us to be aware. And think of a seesaw. I think you call them teeter-totters here, which they now banned because of the possible risk of squishing your fingers. I survived having my fingers squished. Anyway, that's an aside. Okay, so here's the, here's the mindfulness and here's the teeter-totter. And so on one side, so that's number one, on one side are three energizing 
and the other side are the three calming factors. So you've got interest, energy, and delight, which are uplifting, enthusiastic, connect you, bring joy and interest and make the whole thing go. And on the other side, you've got serenity, concentration, and equanimity, which are very calming and soothing factors. And we want them both to be somewhat, we want to have some energy for our practice and some calm and some ease. Upright, in interest, and relaxation, both together somehow. Somewhere in there, our practice is going along okay. If we get a little too much of the first three, the active, we become hindered by agitation, restlessness. It gets too much. If we have a little preponderance too much of the calm three, we become dull. We get into that slothful. So the, there's the superimposition of those hindrances over the factors of awakening. Just think of energizing factors, interest, brightness, enthusiasm, calm, serenity, ease, you know, dull or like, get to know that. Even if you just get to know just that much of it, it's, you can just check in anytime. Okay, awakening factors, how are we doing? Energizing, fa- yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Oh, these are a little too much, calm down a bit. And then we can adjust and relax back off if we're getting wound up. If we're getting a little dull and drifty, we might be very mellow, but it's getting very vague. Okay, let me bring in a little interest. Let me ask a question or two. How's my body? Is it slumping? Something to bring more energy up again. So that's an adjusting that helps the balancing of energy in meditation. Those are wonderful to get to know as not just lists, but as ways to perceive your experience of meditation. I'm going to give you a few more lists, but not in so much depth, just so that you've heard them and you're familiar with them. We've, we've touched on these things without being so clear about that they are what the Buddha taught as dharmas, teachings. Um, the three coverings, how he mentioned these clearly last night, so I'm not going to say much. The, the three, they're just like hindrances. The hindrances cover us or interfere, hinder our clarity. The coverings cover our clarity, same idea exactly. And two of them are the same as the hindrances anyway. It's the greed and the aversion. It's the same as the wanting and the resistance. Another way, in other words, to say the same experience. And the third one is delusion. Delusion is the in-between. If it's really nice, we can get covered and trapped by the wanting. You can enjoy something without having to have it. And we can dislike things, and things can be awful or sad or tragic without having to get into having to get rid of them. So we don't have to do anything about it. We can just allow ourselves to experience the pleasures and pain. That's not a covering. But what covers our wisdom is when we are activated and triggered into reactivity, resistance or craving on each end. And then all the middle territory, the stuff that doesn't trigger us, to like it or to dislike it or do anything at all, which then we just mostly completely dismiss because we're so looking for stimulus and we're so wired for drama that we're noticing pleasant, we're noticing unpleasant, easily tangled in them, and we're missing all the in-between territory, which as retreatants you have a ton of because it's pretty nice around here and sort of ordinary. It's not fantastic and it's not awful, but now you start noticing it and you start noticing cobwebs and you start noticing frost melting or whatever it is you're noticing, suddenly the world starts to become interesting because you've stopped being so stimulated by the drama of the world, which we've removed, which is why we do retreats. And now you're able to realize you can start coming alive in the in-between territory instead of just being tuned out. Tuned out is delusion. 
tuned out is delusion and also delusion, greed, hatred and delusion. The third is a state that covers our awakeness when it isn't just that we are not noticing, it's that we're misperceiving. So we see something as um, important when it isn't. We believe an opinion we have about somebody when it actually is just an opinion, it isn't the truth. So when we're being distorted in what we're seeing. So not seeing or misseeing is delude, deluded behavior. And again, those are the things that are functioning when I'm not awake, and when I'm awake, they're not. So they're kilesa is the word, three kilesas, three coverings. Um, another teaching the Buddha gave, how he's touched on the first of these last night. Again, I want to say you don't have to get these. You don't have to figure it out in your mind. They're just ways of understanding our experience. And as we understand our experience, the understanding helps us move and become transformed from being lost in our neurosis to being free of it. So in time, if you keep exploring, you'll find how it all gels, it all makes sense. So it's not that I learned all this academically to do it. I was just telling you this morning, I just began to realize that's exactly what fits my experience. That's what I love about the Buddha. So the third, uh, no, no, not the third. These three, uh, another, a list of three are called the three characteristics of conditioned existence. The three characteristics of, of everything that we experience and when you look at it, you can pick this one up and go like, oh, look, oh, look, this fits, this fits. One is that things are unsatisfactory. Actually, it doesn't matter which order they happen because they're all together. I think I won't start with that one. I'll start with the fact that, that everything is always changing because that's what, how he was ending his talk with last night. Everything is always going to change, everything. The weather, your face, <laughs> your thoughts, your moods, people, beliefs, political stance, everything is always in, in changing because everything's being played upon everything and endlessly, constantly shifting, changing from one thing to another. Anicca, the word is, um, impermanence of anything and everything. It's liberating, it's unsettling, it's deeply true. You, you can't not see it the more you practice. More and more clearly and more and more rapidly. Because everything is changing, the idea of having something reliable or getting something that will satisfy you or getting rid of something and being free of it doesn't make sense when your system knows that it's going to change anyway. So why try and hang on or get something? Because as soon as I've got it, it's going to break if it's a thing or get old or I'll get bored with it or I'll need a new one or they don't turn out to be quite the person you thought they were and you need another one or something. <laughs> it's always changing. Or your taste is changing. You thought it was exactly the right thing for you and suddenly you actually prefer green ones or whatever it is. So that behavior of wanting and needing to get and even the same of trying to get rid of starts looking ridiculous. And so you see that that's also true. Things are never going to satisfy us. The things that we think will make our world better trying to get states, trying to get you know, good experiences in meditation, all of it. Am I running out of time? I wanted to apply a little poem, a little piece of a I'm poem about that. I'm on a roll, I'm that. on a roll. Oh, okay, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> hold it, hold it, later. No, it, it fits with that little piece. Uh, go on then. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Sorry. Where was I? You broke my thing. No. Okay, so... <laughs> Anicca, Anicca dukkha. dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta. 
And this is the third of the characteristics, all of which, it doesn't matter which way you look at them, they all are the same thing. So anatta is that, this is an important one to get. I have to tell you this one. It's, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is fun. I'm having fun anyway. Good. Um, the mind perceives, you know, I did the bird in the box, that kind of thing. The, we perceive things. We perceive thingness. We, think, we perceive as though things are solid. This is you. This is me. This is bull. You know, this is Howie. This is wood. That's the way we've survived, okay? That's the way we're wired. And these things seem very real to us. Now, I'm not going to do it to this because I respect it too much, but if this were a flashlight or I owned it, what I would do is take it apart. And there's a battery in there, and if it were a flashlight, it would have a lens, it would have a different spring and different things like that. When you take it apart, that thing, it isn't a thing anymore. It's a bunch of parts. A jaguar isn't really a jaguar. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot of metal, miles of cables, you know, some leather, put together in a certain way and given a name, jaguar. Everything's like that. And it isn't just like that. It's changing into something else in any moment. So here's my story, which I have told many times also. If, I'm not going to apologize for my story. I'm tired to, of getting apologizing for my stories. I just repeat the same stories because they're great. So listen. <laughs> So I was here at Spirit Rock on a month-long retreat in March one year, years back. And um, I like to eat fresh local food within a mile if possible, and I grow a lot of it myself. So I have principles about what I'll eat, and I'll only eat local and in-season food as best I can. And it was March, and at the end of the breakfast line at breakfast was the bowl full of fruit, in which were bananas, oranges, and apples, as was often the case. And the apples looked really good. But it was March. And this was before gala apples were flown in by plane from New Zealand in March. So they were obviously California apples. So they were obviously six months old, which would have put them out of my radar. But except they looked really good. And so I thought, hmm, I'm going to check out this apple. So I took this apple, ate my breakfast. I didn't slice it up nice and ladylike as I would normally because it looked so enticing. I felt rather childish. So I went and took a bite. And when I took a bite of apple, this is what happened. And this took about half a second. Oh, my God, it's so juicy. It's as juicy as it looks. And I, because of my pictures, I could see these teeth chomping into this fleshy apple and bursting all these cells of juice all around my mouth, and I could feel it. And, oh, my God, it's so full of juice, but it's been inside this waxy skin in a box in a cooler in California for the last six months. And it got in there, and it's still in there, from the stalk of the tree last year, and it got into the stalk by going up inside the tree, and it got up into the tree in the form of sap by being sucked up by the roots, and it got sucked out of the soil because it had fallen into the soil of rain, as rain, and it had fallen as rain because it had come out of the clouds, and it got into the clouds by being evaporating out of the Pacific Ocean. And where is rain, apple juice, cloud? That was half a second. And then the next half second I kind of invited, but it did the same thing onwards. And it was like, and it's going down my throat, and it's becoming stomach fluid, and it's going to become pee, and it's going to become blood, and it's going to become steam out of my mouth, and it's going to get peed into the septic system and go down into rivers and back into the ocean. And where in all of this is heather? Where in all of this is blood, pee, apple juice, apple? This is just 
a streaming of fluid moving through that at any one moment we take and we say apple juice or we take and we say blood or whatever we say cloud but it isn't actually just cloud it's this is a, a flux of energy that we've boxed into and given a little label everything is like that me heather i'm not just heather i'm life i'm energy i'm stardust i'm english i'm white i'm all this stuff and it's all changing all the time. Anatta is that there's, there isn't actually any solid thingness. It's just a name we give it for that temporary manifestation as a way to communicate with each other. <clears throat> Our experience of it is just the flux and flow of energy. There you go. Those are the three characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> Running out of time. Um, okay, go ahead, poem. <laughs> <laughs> Circling back, just getting back to delusion, the uh, fundamental delusion for all of us is we mistake, is our mistaken perception of those three characteristics. We take what is impermanent to be permanent, we take which, that which is unsatisfactory, unreliable to be reliable, and we take that which is clearly not self, not separate, not apart from everything, we take that as self. And those, that is the fundamental delusion that... Um, makes us see the world as uh, so isolating and separate. And it really the root cause of racism, injustice, everything, everything flows from these fundamental misperceptions. So delusion is really at the heart of we are, what we are trying to unpack here. And it, it just as far as that second um, misperception, it just struck me that I thought it would fit right at that time. <laughs> Taking what is... Uh, unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. I was thinking of the poem from Hafez, which I'll read the rest of it tomorrow, just as a send-off, but a little line within the poem that says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that, that, promise, that provide you a, a moment of pleasure, which means see through that delusion. Learn to recognize the 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 counterfeit coins that provide you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. Oh, great. So, and so, and that's why we... Short-term gain for long-term pain. That's right. That's why we wake up, so that we, we're not dragged behind a farting camel. <laughs> Absolutely. Great description. Thank you very much, Howard. You're welcome. <laughs> So I think that's all. I'll, I'm not going to say any more about them, but the four Brahma Viharas I mentioned today in the afternoon session, um, there are five spiritual faculties which grow. There are 12 links of dependent origination where we can get caught endlessly going around in this sort of circling of wanting this and getting upset and hooked, but we don't need to if we realize that pleasant is dangerous and can lead us into wanting. We can get free in that way. Ten paramis, ten beautiful ways of behaving. Anyway, this is the basic way the Buddha offered these teachings in these lists. And these are the essential, essential, if you like, foundation explanations. And there's such a clever way to get it and to say, oh yes, this and this and this. This can be my experience. I can understand myself in those terms. It's not the totality, but it's a way of being able to perceive how it's working in here. And that's what we're trying to do as we meditate. So there we go. So There's clearly a... life is not reducible to a list. 
However, the teachings were offered orally, you know, you know, orally for 500 years. So the, a way of, of uh, sharing them where that people could remember, they could be repeated, um, was in this list form. But I love that. It works for a mind like mine, you know, to actually, it helps me like be able to check on them. But anyway... So this is an offering. And so what I'm, what, why we're wanting to um, speed this up is because clearly this, uh, this morning there were so many questions. And, and because there's a large number of you, and a lot of you have questions you know, newer to practice, and there are only two of us in only a few days, it seemed that it would be really wise to allow some time for Q&A. And so that's what we wanted to which we failed which we, to which create. We failed. Have we run out of time already? <laughs> I was ready to go for another half an hour. No, we can. We can. We're How free. are you feeling? Should we do a few minutes of Q&A? Are we okay? I went way too long, I'm sorry. That's okay, it was fun listening. You did tell me to, anyway. Okay, so let's take, we'll take 10, 15,